Stephen Delbos is a New England-born writer living in Prague. His poetry, essays, and translations have been published internationally. He is the author of From a Terrace in Prague, a Prague poetry anthology, and the author of a poetry chapbook in memory of fire. His collection of visual poems, Bagatelles for Typewriter, was exhibited at Prague's Art Space Gallery in 2012. His play, Chetty's Lullaby, about trumpeter Chet Baker, was produced in San Francisco. A founding editor of the literary journal Body, he teaches at Charles University and Anglo-American University in Prague. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Glad to be here. So you moved to Prague. Why did you move to Prague? Originally, I came to Prague as a student. So my junior year in college, I, I was in Prague for the whole year. And that was more of a, I guess, desire to go abroad. It wasn't specifically Prague until I chose Prague. Had a great year and loved the place, loved the people, made some important relationships. By the end of the school year, I had decided that I was going to come back after I graduated. Came back into a a program, a TEFL, teaching English as a foreign language program. Started to teach at a school, a language school, and time kept going by, And but it kept being a a city with a lot of opportunity and very engaging city and also a place uh, that's very easy to live, you know, just feels very livable. In those years, I was doing a low residency MFA program at New England College. So I was living in Prague, but then going back a couple times a year to to go to classes and things. And now here, it's uh, a decade later uh, or more, and uh, it's still a wonderful city and engaging and all of those things. And you're teaching at Charles University and and the other one, the Anglo-American? That's right. And doing quite a bit of freelance writing as well. Ended up entering the PhD program at Charles University, which I just finished. So, yeah, it's What was been, your thesis on? Uh, it's on American poetry during the Cold War, and specifically this 1960 anthology, The New American Poetry, edited by Donald Allen and published by Grove Press. Use it, looking at, it, at, at that anthology, which has been very, very influential and continues to be influential, looking at how that is, the anthology was kind of grounded in the Cold War and Cold War cultural warfare and how all of that kind of political and social atmosphere influenced the way that this particular anthology was put together. And because this anthology has been so influential, how the way we think about poetry, American poetry today, uh, is still influenced by these kind of Cold War uh, models. The Congress for Cultural Freedom, for example, which is this kind of uh, a group that was sponsored by the CIA in the end. And, uh, you know, they were financing magazines like Encounter and the Partisan Review and all of these, even the Paris Review, but also sponsoring uh, exhibitions of abstract expressionist painting that would tour, especially kind of countries along the Iron Curtain or in South America and things, countries that were thought, you know, on the brink of falling over to communism. Um, and the idea with, by promoting, you know, people like Jackson Pollock and so forth, and these abstract expressionist painters was to promote, you know, this idea of uh, the freedom, you know, the, of, in America and that uh, in the Soviet Union, you, you're prescribed to paint Soviet realism, you know, which is not necessarily true totally, but that was the idea. And so look at our painters, you know, they can uh, do whatever they want. So anyways, there was a, there was an exhibition sponsored by MoMA, which actually the poet Frank O'Hara, who worked at MoMA Museum of Modern Art in New York City, uh, he kind of helped 
organized this thing, unbeknownst, you know, nobody knew that the, until later that the CIA was funding this Congress for Cultural Freedom. Stephen Spender had a magazine. Yeah, Encounter. That's right, mm-hmm. and he didn't even apparently know that CIA was behind it. Well, and then he apparently. resigned, right? That's one of the interesting, you know, aspects. I mean, I don't really get into too much, all of this drama and intrigue forms the kind of background. There's a great book uh, by Francis Stoner Saunders called uh, Who Paid the Piper, the CIA and Cold War cultural warfare or something. And she really did a lot of the pioneering research on this stuff. A lot of, you know, this has only come out recently with the whatever declassification. So, yes. So anyways, um, there was this particular exhibition called The New American Painting. And uh, Alan went to the exhibition, which I find out examining his correspondence. And, uh, you know, so he then decides from The New American Painting... He hadn't chosen the title of the book yet, you know, and he writes to Charles Olson and says, you know, I saw this exhibition yesterday and it's given me a lot of great ideas of how to organize the anthology. So then you kind of have this interesting link between the anthology and that whole, you know, Cold War cultural warfare and the presentation of American art and culture in a certain way and the nationalism. And Does that affect the content? Or the, the, the choice of the poetry, that it had anything to do with the Cold War or not? It, the, the poems themselves on the surface, most of them aren't uh, engaging really in, in politics or, you know, overtly, I mean. Yeah. But it definitely influenced, you know, who he chose and, and, and didn't choose to, to be in the anthology. It's showing the permeability of uh, this idea of nationalism and nation and how viable is that in terms of editorial and editorializing and then that opens up into you know literary transnationalism and thinking about uh, you know the the birthplace of a poem and, and and this and that which people have been doing in the last couple of decades this transnational looking at the roots r-o-u-t-e-s rather than the roots r-o-o-t-s uh the roots of influence in the way that you know t.s Eliot is the Amer- American poet or a British poet, you know, Henry, Henry claim them, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you see, there's an anthology that I mentioned in the in the book, or that you know, hopefully will be a book, a dissertation, it's something, yeah, modern poetry, 1950 or something like that. And Eli- there's two sections, British and American, and Eliot's in both of them. Oh, okay. you know, so <laughs> when you start, it's something that we take for granted. You know, what is the new American poetry? It's poetry that's new and that's American. But what is, you know, what does that really mean? And then also... Where did it come from? Yeah. Yeah. And so, as you can see, it's a... Well, it's interesting, the connection with the Cold War and uh, and Prague and uh, and the writers here, they they had to uh, deal with censorship. It was a constant threat to their uh, freedom of expression, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that's what they, they defined themselves against in many cases. Um, yeah, and there's the famous thing from uh, Philip Roth, you know, when he's in the Klima letters there, thinking that were originally in the New York Review of Books. You know, he questions maybe the, those writers under communism had it better because they had a kind of common enemy and a uniting kind of mm-hmm. force and a target and things, you know, that's... Yeah, and something to, to direct their anger. Yes, uh, toward and, and anger is such a such a terrific motivator, isn't it? Absolutely, to creativity, yeah, absolutely. especially if you have a, a target. But it was definitely it has been very interesting to work on this type of uh, you know the Cold War period and things and being over here and I think just being in Europe in general has given me a different you know it allowed me to approach the topic 
maybe a little bit differently than I would have if I had done, written the whole thing in America, I guess, in the United States. How's that? Well, I think, you know, maybe I wouldn't have even thought of this uh, specific kind of project and this idea and this, you know, transnationalism and what it means to be American. And yeah, I don't know, even the Cold, the Cold War and, and all of that, that, you know, historical and sociological stuff, that area. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't know if that kind of point of view would have occurred to me. So um, you launched, along with some others, you were the founding editor of uh, Body? Yes, with uh, two other close friends of mine and, and great poets and editors, Christopher Crawford and uh, Joshua Mensch. And the three of us founded it shortly thereafter. When was that? That was in... When was that? I think it was in 2015, maybe? I don't well, know. I should probably know that. It's but. quite recent, then. Uh, yeah, this is, yeah. let's see, no, maybe it was 2014. Right. So you'd, you'd spent your time studying at the, at the university to get your PhD and freelancing and writing some poetry. I had started teaching at the university. Oh, I taught there for a few years before I started the, the PhD, which I did, you know, that was five, like five years ago, I guess. I guess it was probably right around the same time that we founded Body. The other editors at Body have been living here for a while. Christopher is from Scotland and Joshua is from, well, Canada, the U.S. Same sort of thing brought them here. They, they love the place. and uh... More or less, yeah. Yeah. And it's been, you know, great. It really took off. What does that mean, it really took off? You've got a bigger audience than you'd expected or you've got people contributing from all over the place or both? Yeah, both. One of the things we wanted to do from the very beginning was to not just be a prog publication mm -hmm. and we don't do print it's only on the website www.bodyliterature.com and we don't even really do issues we publish on a rolling basis mm -hmm. so you know we have a, a number of things we publish every week and typically you know there's poetry throughout the week and then we have uh, usually friday pick or some kind of uh, essay or criticism on friday we have a saturday fiction series and Occasionally we do actual issues. We did a Czech issue a while back. We've done a UK and Irish uh, issue. I think we have a, a central or an Eastern European issue or something coming up very soon. Maybe Slovenian writers, fiction mostly. So in terms of the readership, you know, it just has uh, exceeded our expectations and continues to grow and you know just the way that people engage has been great of course now everything on social media you know social media is the left bank of uh, the 21st century you can establish community and things with people who live across the world and we have very faithful readers and very faithful contributors uh, from around the world and is this a labor of love or you're, you're actually absolutely I was going to say. Yeah, sometimes you, it's love and sometimes it's something else. But yeah. now we don't set, we don't have any ads on the site. We have put a lot of time, or, you know, originally designing the site, we put a lot of time and thought into the way we wanted it to look, you know. So it's very streamlined, very clean, no advertisement, and really presenting the texts in a way that, you know, in a respectful way that gives them space. There aren't ads flashing you know next to next to somebody's quatrain or something like that so yeah it's a labor, labor of love and we are actually going to be publishing uh, our first book shortly we don't have the specific publication date but it should be sometime this year uh it's a poem a book of poems by a czech poet named milan dzienski and uh, whom we've published before 
translated by Nathan Fields, who's an American uh, translator living in Prague. Both Milan and Nathan are longtime, you know, friends of we've known them for a very long time, friends and contributors as well to Body. So we're really excited to kind of kick off a press, a small press, and we'll be starting with this great, great book, Secret Life by Milan Jasinski. The poetry appealed to all of you. It must Absolutely, yeah. It's he's great. I mean, he's really. This is not his latest book. It's a, he's published several books. He's an award-winning Czech contemporary poet. Yeah. Um, but no one else outside of Czech public is. We so we yes we've uh, published some of, some of his work uh, over the last few years. Maybe you know eight or nine poems. I believe he has published maybe a couple other a couple other places. Mm-hmm. He's in he's in in this anthology actually yeah so this was back in 2011 the and one that, yeah the one about the, Prague that's right from a yeah. terrace in Prague but yeah so he has hasn't been published in a, a book length uh, collection in English so it should be exciting and it, you know his poems are just really fantastic so I think they're going to stir some hearts hopefully <laughs> I read about it. there was a controversy a couple of years ago I don't know how big it was but it was about uh, I think it was like coming in your mouth or something like that <laughs> yes yeah Is that, was that a big uh, deal or did I just stumble across something that was nothing that was an interesting uh, chapter you, you were called misogynist yes yeah we, we were the poem was by Bobby Parker and it's called thank you for swallowing my cum we had published it and we had published previous work, you know, he's, he's a British poet, contemporary poet, painting now as well. We published a couple of his poems before, and, and, but this particular poem we published, it won, or it was selected to be in a British anthology. The editor that year of the anthology was, I can't remember her name at the moment, but she was probably not a misogynist when she decided to include. Anyway, so what happened was we published the poem and it wasn't a big deal. And then it was selected for this best British poetry anthology. So we published just a notice uh, on Facebook, you know, Bobby Parker's poem, title of the poem. And that was just after another imbroglio that we were involved in. And so people already had their their knives out and and then they weren't they weren't happy with that just the content no people i'm sure most of the people who i don't want to get too too no no but sure. uh, the content was actually you know it's a kind of a poem in praise it was really thank you you know this yeah. kind of and it was about the title and i think a lot of the people who were most upset probably didn't even you know read. click through to read the read the poem you know just the social media controversy but raise your profile i imagine <laughs> It did. It, I mean, yeah, it's not really the... It's such a, an electrifying issue right now, and it, as it should be, I mean, because it's a real thing. You know, you don't want to be on that side of the court, if you, you know what I mean. And I think it was unfounded, so... And it, and it, and it blew over, because it, there was nothing to it, so... Okay. You can, you can thank me for bringing it up. But it's interesting how, again, I'm doing a bit of quick research on it, and, and that, that comes came up. up. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Maybe we can return to that from a terrace in Prague anthology. It's quite substantial. There's 350 pages. These are poets that have written about Prague, correct? Uh, yes. Either poems set in Prague, poems about Prague, uh, poems written in Prague. So some of the poems are, well, it's from 16 different languages. So some of those are Czech poets who lived here. Some of them are people who visited or stayed for longer times, and some of them are people who are just maybe responding to uh, an event that they read about in the newspaper, like John Berryman or Robert Lowell. Yeah. 
or Edwin Muir. He spent a lot of time here. Yeah, he was Kafka's first translator, actually, into English. He was here in two periods. He worked for the British Council. Gary Schneider. Yeah, he's been here for the Prague Writers' Fest uh, a couple of times. So I think that was based on, you know, he, he was actually here. Is there any particular poem in this anthology that's, uh, that really blows the top of your head off? Yeah, there are a few. It was just such an interesting project because uh, I, I had enough to know that it was a, a good idea and that it could make a good anthology. And then over about a year and a half or so of you know, research and compiling, and just, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and more and more interesting. You, know, you have everything from, of course, contemporary poets you know, who are living here now to great poets, you know, really famous poets like Allen Ginsberg or Marina Svetaeva or, uh, you know, of course, writer Maria Rilke or uh, Pablo Neruda. Nazim Hikmet, great Turkish poet. There's so many great, great poets from so many different nations, you know. One of the greatest Turkish poets ever. One of the greatest Spanish language poets ever. Some of the greatest English language poets. You know, there's a Mongolian poet in here. So, you know, there's so much. Um, and that, which is a tribute to, to the work and to the city, really, you know. I mean, that's one of the questions I try to ask. Why, yeah, to, to why? attract that kind of uh, that's right. creative interest. And you've got photographs of all of these poets and little bios? That's right. And, yeah, little bios, and there's some notes in the back about uh, po- the poems with some, with some photographs. And, um, and a map, too. Right? And a map, yeah. So yeah. I'm trying to design it as a poetic guidebook to Prague. Is it a, a Czech publisher? It's Literaria Pregenzia, which is out of Charles University. Right. And it's, there's a Kindle edition. The print run... Uh, sold out, and it's available now on Kindle okay. on Amazon. If you like reading one of them? Yeah, there are so many. I'm just, it's hard, <laughs> hard to narrow down. Yeah, well, I'll, let me, I'll just read the first poem in the book, I suppose. Sure. Fitting introduction. This is a poet of the 19th century named Svatopluk Czech. Actually, there's right a block away, there's a little park named after him and a, a statue of him. And uh, this is... From a long poem called Prague, it's just the first uh, eight or nine lines, and I translated it with Hanna Andrachkova. Behold, Prague. Vision sparkles, blearing, Prague. The name alone sings. The mere sound of it rapturously gets down into the strings of the Czech spirit and sets the heart beating a thunderous throb. Let foreign pilgrims take your modest measurements and scorn, Prague, your graying robes. To us, in your beauty, ancient gloom, you are luscious Naples, you are proud Rome. It is true, isn't it, that Prague has this sort of gloomy uh, black and white feel to it, or at least it's, that's, the, that's the image. Yes, I mean, and especially now, it's so January, um, it, it gets dark early and the sun rises late. And Kafka must have had something to do with that. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's not always, you know, dark and gloomy. I mean, Prague in the spring, Prague in May, May 1st in Prague, it's, uh, you know, heaven on earth. So, the, you know, it really, it's interesting, it really changes. And, this, you know, the cobblestones look different and things and the different light. And I think interesting, you know, in that poem, he's... Let people say that you're gloomy, but we still love you kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's still true a hundred, more than a hundred years later. One of your latest projects is The Absolute Gravedigger. 
that was published by Twisted Spoon Press, interesting sounding press, in 2016. These are the poems of uh, Vitislav. Vitislav. Vitislav Nezval, who was, uh, maybe you could tell me a bit about him. Nezval was a very interesting poet, 1900 to 1958, I believe, and in the 20s and 30s, especially the, you know, the 20s, after World War I, you know, 1918, Czechoslovakia is founded, the First Republic, it's a, a nation, you know, lots of uh, positivity, the war's over, the 20s, this is kind of as it was in the, the roaring 20s in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. But so, in terms of poetry and, and art here, there was, that's really the, when the avant-garde is in, in the, mo- the modern, as we, as we think about it in the 20th century, the avant-garde getting, you know, boiling up, and, and Nezval was right in the center of that, one of the most prolific poets of the 20s and the 30s, gift with musical language. But he was kind of multi-talented, he was a painter as well, I think. I read yeah, there's some, some paintings in there. Actually, this the cover is a kind of one of his, the Calcomanias, more of a print or something, I guess. The avant-garde, the 20s, um, it was not just poetry, you know, it was painters and collagists and photographers and screenwriters and theater people, you know, very vibrant and fermentative time. And he was right in the center of it, as I said. Into the 30s, surrealism starts to become more popular. And, you know, the, the avant-garde kind of morphs towards surrealism or moves towards surrealism. And again, Nezval was one of the main people making contact with Breton and, and Eluard and traveling to Paris. You know, Breton gave a speech in Prague in 34, which was the year that they formally signed off and giving the uh, blessing for the Czechoslovak group of surrealists, which was the, apparently the first kind of official surrealist group outside of France. And so th- this book, The Absolute Gravedigger, comes from there's you know, three books that Nezval published in 36 and 37. They're not a, a, a trilogy per se, but they are, in terms of his body of work, it's the height of his surrealist poetry. And he you know, wrote and published these three books really quickly in two years. You know? It's kind of the high point of, of not only his surrealism, but in a way his whole career as a poet. Surrealism, uh, just to find that, this is sort of Freudian dream you know, it's a little complicated. But <laughs> yeah. But well, and also, uh, there's all I, sorts of I politics within those movements, too, yes, right? Yeah. I mean, the politics in that happened later, in a way. You know, the surrealists were interested in the, or the unconscious, interested in letting go of the critical facilities, automatic writing, trying to access the unconscious mind. Mm. Get and, away from the rational. Yes, get away from the rational. And so in dream, you know, dream states and dream writing, that was all part of that project. We can see it, you know, formally in the way that the poetry is written. Often it's a lot of litanies, you know, and each line is, a, is an image. Dali came up with this idea called the paranoia critical method. And it was his kind of take on the surrealist method and how to access the unconscious. Looking at an object and you work yourself up into this kind of paranoic mania as you uh, see the different ways you could possibly interpret the object. So when you think about, you know, Dali's famous paintings where it's kind of two images in one. The reflections of elephants, that was a big one. Yeah, it's like an optical illusion. You know what I mean? It it depends on how you look at it. It's one picture and then it's kind of another picture. Mm -hmm. And so, and in many of his paintings, objects are kind of morphing into they're kind of two things in one morphing into another state or something like that. And so Nezval is doing that in this book. And so what you see is that the poem begins with some a natural scene, some of the poems specifically in the book. For example, 
harvesters, you know, cutting the wheat on a field. And then it turns into something different and turns into something different and turns into something different and turns into something different. So there's a, a, a real freewheeling sense of... Like you know, the Freud's free association? Yes, I suppose it's, it's, you could describe it as linked to that. You see that, so it's not simply these litanies of different images. You know, all of the images are linked and kind of, and are developing out of the thing that was in reality. You know, that's the subject of the poem. And so, you know, there's another poem about a woman milking a cow, and it becomes this kind of prostitute scene. The birds are sitting on the windowsill, and the, that becomes a fire, and then it all comes back to the, the milking scene. So it's this very kind of unexpected transformation, metamorphosis. Uh, it's quite interesting the way that he takes these surrealist methods and then combines his own innate musicality. Some of the poems in the book are formal quatrains using rhyme schemes, which is kind of his rejoinder to the Parisian surrealists who thought, you know, that these litany poems, these free verse lists were the best way to access, you know, the surrealist kind of unconsciousness. He's in this one section of the book saying you can do it in formal poetry as well, or I, at least I can do it in formal mm-hmm. poetry. Anyways, and then Nesval's interesting. At, this is, as I said, is kind of the pinnacle of his poetry. And then he, you know, after World War II and so forth gets involved in, you know, writing Stalinist uh, odes and takes an official position. And no, it sold out then, did he? Uh, yeah, some would, some would describe it that way. One of those complicated figures, you know, there are so many of them here. Yeah, uh, that's simplifying, obviously. It's, it's not easy. Yeah, yeah. But he was, a, I think he was some kind of a official in something. Took some film, kind of, right? maybe that was it. Yeah, I can't, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but some kind of official post. I, I like surrealist poetry. I'm interested in the whole project and... He has such a brilliant eye, and also the music and the language is just uh, so musical. And it's absolute freedom, but formal perfection. Many would define that as as good poetry. Sure, yeah, sure. The sort of limitations that set you free. Yes, yeah, yeah. Cocteau said something about that. You have to escape through the cage or something. Is there a short poem that uh, exemplifies what we've just been talking about? Sure. One very short free verse one, and then uh, a short formal poem, just to get the, the variation. There's, it's very rare nowadays to have a poem. First of all, it's a long book of poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's poetry, there's art. You know, we've printed these, uh, some of his paintings. It's a beautiful book. Twisted Spoon does really fantastic books. They've got a website you can purchase this off? That's right. It should be uh, twistedspoon.com.cz. I'm not sure. If you just Google Twisted Spoon, you'll, you'll find it. I mean, it's, Twisted Spoon is a, is a great press, and they've published so many important works from authors in Central and Eastern Europe over the past, I think it's been about 20 years. In their native tongue as well as in English? In, no, just translated into English. So okay. Central and Eastern European literature translated into English, poetry, fiction, they make beautiful books. The editorial work is fantastic. <clears throat> and the catalog they've built up over the years is just, it's really impressive and, and such an important contribution to people who are interested and want to find this writing in, in English, mm-hmm. which is sometimes hard to, hard to do, hard to find. Um, so let me read The Lamp. Around the lamp in the stairway, lighting the deserted chateau, built in the style of Art Nouveau, Parades of shadows sway. 
Shadow after shadow bends down, in pairs kneeling, convulsively reeling, though not a soul is around. The lamp chimney is sooty, the wick gives off smoke, the shadows changing constantly cuddle and stroke. The lamp illumines this Sodom of figures resembling the figures of phantoms strangled and trembling. While the wick flares with purer and purer light, serenely it brightens the stairs and the shadows vanish from sight. So there you see candles in the, in, in the stairwell and it becomes this scene of you know shadow and light and phantoms. And, and then I'll just read this uh, short one. One section of the book, as I was saying, there's just such an amazing variety of styles from long narrative poems that comment on, you know, the rise of Hitler and uh, the movings toward World War One, or sorry, World War Two, kind of tension in Europe in the in the late 30s, mm-hmm. to very short lyrics, to prose, to paintings, to formal work, you know, and rhyming quatrains. Um, and in the center of the book is a section called Bizarre Town, and it's, uh, I think, 40, 43 very short lyric poems um, with very clipped, measured language, short lines, and each is a scene from this bizarre town. It's interesting because this particular book doesn't really mention Prague specifically, whereas another of these three books, uh, an earlier one, is called Prague with Fingers of Rain. And uh, that is, a, you know, very literally set in Prague. A lot of the scenes here are uh, in the countryside, but you can definitely, it, it is the Czech, it feels like the Czech countryside. And Under the slender Gothic arch of a water tower stands a beardless young man, lamp in hand, in his vaulted chest, a bell. When he coughs, the bell rings, and in the town, open in one fell swoop, all the windows. So I should mention that I co-translated this with uh, Teresa Novitska, who's a Czech translator and writer, and that's important to mention. And I will get us some more. Would you say that the, the <clears throat> one of the problems with poetry and literature in, in Canada and elsewhere is apathy? It's just that there's not that big an audience for poetry or for even even for fiction, for that matter. But it strikes me that uh, Prague is, uh, and, and the Czech Republic, reading is, has been certainly really, really important to the, to the country. I don't know if it still is or not. Yeah, I read something the other day, uh, or saw some headline that, you know, there was a study, and Czechs are among the, in Europe, I think it was a study about Europe, Czechs are among the, you know, they read more than most. You know, you see people all the time on public transportation reading reading books. It's I think it's much more common. You know, there's a new bookstore just opened downstairs. I mean, when was the last time you saw a new bookstore open? I don't know how it is in Canada, but in, I know how it is in the U.S. And <laughs> there aren't many new bookstores opening up. I think in Europe in general, in my experience, there is something in my, you know, just in my observations of different cities and countries. Literature and reading is kind of more woven into everyday life. In the States, maybe you have to drive. Well, Borders is out of business, but, you know, you drive to the mall or to the strip mall or whatever and, like, go to this gigantic book emporium, you know, which is three floors or something. And 
Whereas in Europe, you know, in any city, in the center of the city, you're going to just walk by little bookstores. I mean, on Wenceslas Square, there's four not tiny bookstores. And also then about translation and things. And here, you know, in Europe, much more translation happens and people are reading. It's not like people are just reading the, the Hemingway book that they got assigned, you know, in high school or college or something, but just contemporary writers. And that all seems more of a part of the culture less compartmentalized than it does in, in, in other places in the States, I think. But again, I mean, I don't, I haven't lived in New York City or something, so maybe that's not the case. Just my observation. What about uh, as a poet, do you have any guiding principles around why you create that drives your output? Yes, it changes. Looking at In Memory of Fire, some of those poems go back 10 years. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that all those poems are, are in that book. You know, I still think they're all real poems and thing. You know what I mean? No. I chose those ones specifically. You know, I think those are some of the best poems that I've published. And I can read them now and I see that the approach that I was taking to the poem or even the kind of uh, impetus to make the poem, you know, the moment that presented itself as being something poetic, worth of writing a poem, and is different from where I am now. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, I mean, you know, so the, those poems, some of those poems, the poems in there, in, I mean, in Memory of Fire, it's an elegy. You know, it's a very elegiac book about, you know, loss and trying to, to hang on to things and, and trying to, you know, grasp for some sense of permanence in an impermanent world. You know, as, a, as a, somebody in their mid-20s and late 20s, those were the some of the issues that I was grappling with. And, you know, also just formally, I can see there are, at that time, I think, well, I was very concerned with kind of the physicality of the language and the musicality and just trying to really pressurize the language, you know, make everything really musical. And, and so, and, you know, and now I think just where I am, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm married, I have a four-year-old son, more accomplished, you know, I've had some publications and it's not like I'm not questioning the universe or my place in the universe anymore, but those issues aren't as pressing. What's inspired my work in the last few years has, you know, just been different things. I mean, I wrote a series of poems based on current events and, you know, the news and things like that. Obviously, and now my last kind of manuscript that I'm putting together is uh, inspired by fatherhood. So, you know, experiences that I hadn't had when I was writing those poems. But I think the main thing for me, what I mean by they're still real poems, I can see that, you know, I'm not in that place now where I was, but I still stand by the uh, verbal expression. You know, the language feels right and real. And uh, you're, not, you're not embarrassed by them. No, no, that's a simple way of putting it. But th So there's one word in there that I, you know, because these poems, right, they never... What did Valerie say, right? That you, a work of art is abandoned, it's never finished. So, yeah. so there is one word that I have changed since that came out last summer, but that's not bad. You know, so they feel done, and, and uh, so I'm happy they're all out in a really beautiful, handmade chap. One of my favorites is actually the first poem, the In Memory of Fire. Could you read that? Sure. In Memory of Fire. Until our flesh gives birth to bones, when the bridges of our fingers fall to earth, until our eyes ignite in memory of fire, flash bulbed as the dead 
sockets of blind men, when, this prophecy is elegy, we won't remember that May evening, in a park when the flickering lanterns of lightning paraphrased our faces, but until the beds in which we slept are cinders and those cinders ash and ash a vacant story for the wind until that city where I reigned the wild carriage of your tears becomes a tenement of ice, the borrowed letters of our names a scattered flock of startled crows. The days we shared are indestructible. Now, I how do you feel about deconstructing that? In like, French you, theory terms or in no, <laughs> conversational no. terms? Yeah, in terms of what you're, what tricks are you using to appeal to me? <laughs> There's a toolbox that you've got. What tools are you using? So it's one sentence, and you know, builds up the momentum and builds up to this final crescendo. The line, yeah, which is you know, basically an iambic pentameter line as well, which is a very you know, for English speakers, is very rhetorical and classical and natural. And also natural, yes, yeah. yeah. And the inevitability, you know, the poem kind of builds up. In the meantime, the repetition of until and the semicolons, you know, kind of keep the tension going, keep the poem moving forward. You know, there's music in it, but it's not formally rhymed. And, you know, the the, uh, rhyme is uh, often internal rhyme or off rhyme, and it's not not a repeating pattern, so it's moving forward and kind of pressurizing the language more and more as as the rhymes happen. Okay, let's look at off rhyme. What's that? So evening and flickering, for example, it's flickering and bickering would be a full rhyme. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I mean that's not a genius uh, thing. But uh, let me see if I could find another example. You know, until an indestructible, for example. You know, and then an internal rhyme. You know, sockets of blind men when. So the two rhymes. You know. This time, I was also thinking a lot about uh, enjambments, you know, and and my friend Chris Crawford, you know, my fellow editor at Body, described, like, the line breaks, and, you know, I was trying to pressurize the beginning of the poem, and so the the lines would start really strong and end really strong, and he called it, like, the way you move down through the poem, especially one like this, it's kind of like throwing a, a... a bouncy ball down a chimney, you know, it's, it's moving down, but it's bouncing back and forth as it moves down. You know, I was really trying to think about having this really solid structure, you know, and then you kind of, you're just with the line breaks and the cesura and, and the enjambment and, you know, and the semicolons and the punctuation all throughout, you're moving, you're not stopping at the end of every line and then starting again, it's all tuck, kind of tucked in into this you know, the energy and the flow of the poem is much more kind of dynamic. I don't remember exactly. I do actually, yeah, I do remember. Remember I wrote this in Prague and then I was in in Plymouth, Massachusetts where my parents live in the summertime, you know, which I would always be writing a lot there and kind of on summer vacation. And I remember really trying trying to get this kind of, I had part of it, but trying to get it into the, into the form took a while the the carriage of tears the city where i reigned the wild carriage of your tears that was the like when i had f- found that that was the kind of key that was the last thing that i really needed i remember just i was trying to think of a metaphor in it and then finally i just that's finally i came up with one which is i'm sure that's what everybody goes through to a certain extent mm-hmm. but this for me is um, a summation of my worldview you know at that period of time 
the days we shared are indestructible until the end of time. You know, whatever happens, the shared experiences that you have and the relationships, and even if the relationships end, you still affect that person for the rest of their life, you know? You know, I think at that time I was single and then not single and then single again and then not <laughs> whatever. Through, through uh, the writing and the rewriting of that? Uh, no, I wasn't uh, formally dating anyone at this time, I think. I didn't have, it was after, you know, this long-term relationship that I had that I came, that kind of brought me back. And uh, at that time, living in Prague, Prague can be a very transient city. So make, meeting people, making friends, they move away. You know, traveling, you meet people. Especially when you're, you know, you're younger, you're on your own, you're open to anything. You meet somebody at a hostel and decide to go to the bar with them or something and then, you know, have a have a great night and you never see them again and you still, it can affect you forever. It feels appropriate to have it as the opening poem, to have it as the title poem of the chap. Yeah, I mean, it's something I it still feels right, still stand by, still believe. And just finally, is is there a poet that, or several poets, both whose work and whose outlook or behavior you'd like to model yourself on? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I, I again, that's I can see how looking back on the last, I mean, really since adolescence, when I when literature became something that was important to me, I can see there were different, not necessarily models, but just get into something, you know. And I really I want to like really get into it kind of all the way. I mean, we haven't even talked about playwriting. And in fact, but, in fact, that that's in, let's just touch on that. You wrote up, and, and you're really doing a, a service for Prague writers and, and poets and composers, Smetana. Really interesting life, great music. And you mentioned was, tragedy. What was the tragedy? The tragedy was that he, well, first he, he his first wife died. He is, I think, two or maybe even three uh, daughters died. He eventually lost his hearing. Eventually, basically went mad and died in a in a poor, insane asylum. Yeah. Kind of classic story in yeah. a way. Yeah. In the meantime, he'd he'd sold off. He w- went deaf and you know couldn't teach anymore and sold off all his work to the you know this theater for no money. Had to move out of Prague into his uh, daughter's farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And it's again, it's kind of like. What I was saying about the anthology, or even when I was saying about the, you know, my Cold War poetry research, you kind you know you have a good project when you have this idea, you think you know the topic, and what you know about the topic is enough to make you think that it's a good project. But then when you start to really research and do more work, and it keeps deepening and deepening and opening up, you know, that's in my experience, it's when you know you're really onto something. You know, it was the same case. Smet, you know, his famous. Uh, the melody from the Voltova, you know, the Moldau. That's so, just one of my favorite pieces. Me too. I mean, it gets me every time. Yeah. Know? And that was something that I heard very early on, you know, here in, in Prague. And then for a while, the on Czech Airlines, when you landed, that was the kind of Muzak that would come on, right. which is funny. But in uh, anyways, and so I, you know, liked the music. And at some point, I guess... You're a musician, right? You're a jazz guitarist. Originally. I don't really... Now I just, you know, I play... With my son, he's a budding budding drummer. But uh, <laughs> when I was in college, I played in jazz bands and things, and and so that kind of inspired the in you know the original the Chet Baker play. And I had done that, and I guess I was casting around, you know, for something new. And I just happened to be looking into Smetna's life, 
and saw all of the, these things about his story. And, you know, of course, he was like Svatopluk Czech, the poet from the anthology that I read in the 19th century, the Czech National Revival, people trying to establish Czech culture and Czech language and music. And so Smetna was, you know, in 1848 in the revolution, he's on the barricade at Charles Bridge, almost gets his head, you know, blown off, and then kind of settles down into a more, you know, stable life and career, but is still trying to create Czech music and use Czech melodies. And so that was interesting. And that, you know, again, nationalism, I guess it's something that I'm interested in. Uh, But the political thing and then the personal elements uh, are tragic and dramatic. And then, you know, the music is wonderful. And so it was a great project at the the Prague Shakespeare Company. And my wife, Amy Huck, directed the the play. And it was, uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Great reception, you know, great houses, sold out houses every night. And when was that? No, no, that was just about a year ago. It was last March, something like that. Actually, I have the... uh, Yeah, last March. Yeah, I've heard about the Shakespeare Company here. Yeah, they've been around for many years now, and they do uh, not just Shakespeare, but they commissioned this play, and they, not too long before Deaf Empire, they did a, what was it, a Kafka, America, uh, America Kafka, it was called America Kafka, um, okay. interesting Kafka-based play, and they've done a lot of really interesting projects. You were asking me if there's a, a writer or poet that I would model myself on, and yeah. I was saying, certainly not Smetna, but... You know, I get interested by someone, by a character, by a subject, and, and really try to yeah, explore it as deeply as possible. So, you know, over over time, there have been people that were important to me, write different writers. And I'm, t- and I'm trying to answer the question now. Yeah. I mean, you know, early on, Rilke was important. You know, and then the Beats, Jack Kerouac mm-hmm. from Massachusetts. You know, that whole thing was important. You know, and this is going back to high school, really. You know, Robert Lowell was important to a certain extent for a period of time. I don't know. I mean, it changes. You know, obviously being here, I've been open up to a lot European literature. I just wrote a review of Adonis, this uh, Syrian poet. He's kind of, he lives in Paris. He's in his 80s. My that, there's a Polish poet, Adam Zagajewski, I really love. You know, obviously Nezval and other, other Czech poets. The post-World War II avant-garde, that whole thing. I don't know, right now I'm reading Emerson. I'm going through this... Uh, early American phase and becoming a transcendentalist for the winter. If I had to give the exact answer right now, you know, in terms of this minute, these days, it would be, yeah, it would be Emerson. Just finally, so if someone's planning a trip to Prague, is there a, what would you suggest they read? I mean, there's your... Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's... a good way to sort of dig into to, to, to get the surface of a lot of different poets and they can go deeper if they wish to. Is that uh, available? It's on, available on Kindle, yeah. On so Kindle. if you have a Kindle or, a, you know, an iPad or whatever. And it's called... From a Terrace in Prague, a Prague Poetry Anthology, edited by Stephen Delbos. So, yeah, you can get, you can get it on, on Amazon. And maybe, you know, some people are probably put off by poetry, but... Of course, you know the writers like Kafka and and Hrabal and Ivan Klima and so forth. But the anthology's really been designed to be utilitarian. The forward, the afterward, the notes, they're not it's not dry academic writing and criticism. I've got you know, received a lot of great feedback from people just saying that it was, you know, before they got here and even or while they were here or after. Just gives an interesting 
kind of different portrait on the city. Yaroslav Seifert uh, won the Nobel Prize. Czech poet won the Nobel Prize in, uh, I think, 1981. How do you spell his name? S-E-I-F-E-R-T. He's translated in English. Yes, there's a couple books. Uh, there, Ewald Osser's O-S-E-R-S was a great translator of Central European languages, died a few years ago. He has published a, or translated a, a selected, I think it's the selected poems of Yaroslav Seifert. What about prose? Uh, Ivan Klima, very interesting contemporary writer. Alex Zucker is an interesting American translator of Czech uh, fiction. And he's recently published, or rather translated, this book, Three Rooms by Tr Petra Hulova, who's a contemporary Czech uh, fiction writer. And, you know, really, I would check Twisted Spoon's catalog because they publish contemporary writing. Emil Hockel, he wrote a book. He's a contemporary novelist, Hockel, H-A-K-L. He wrote a book called of, of Kids and Parents, I think, that was published by Twisted Spoon. And it, that's, you know, really interesting in terms of just contemporary Prague kind of street scenes. Joachim Topol, T-O-P-O-L, is another uh, contemporary novelist. He's been translated quite a few times. Gargling with Tar is one of his books. What about nonfiction? Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, Klima's yeah. written some interesting uh, essays yeah. on totalitarianism. Klima's book, The Spirit of Prague, is interesting. There's a book called Prague in Black and Gold, which is uh, interesting, too. There's uh, a great, for more literary and intellectual history of Prague, is... Uh, it's called Prague, the Capital of the 20th Century, A Surrealist History, and it's by Derek Sayer. And has that got to do with the history, or has it got to do with surrealism? Or It's, it's, it's kind of a literary history, mostly focused on surrealism, but it's uh, you know making the case of Prague being the capital of the 20th century the same way that Walter Benjamin called Paris the capital of uh, the 19th century, I guess. Mm -hmm. Or did he call it the 20th century? Maybe it was the 20th. Thanks so much for your time, Stephen. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Stephen Delbos, who is a Prague-based writer. What's your latest project? Is there something you're looking on publishing in the next little while, or hoping to? Working on another translation of Nesval, a second of these three books that I mentioned. Twisted Spoon? That's right. It's called Woman in the Plural. And I am finishing up a, a novel right now, and putting together, kind of finishing up uh, two poetry manuscripts, actually. It's oh. funny because I, while I was, the last five years working on the dissertation, I was still writing poetry and, and fiction, but didn't have time to really do anything with it. And so now I'm going back to the file cabinet and finding these things that I kind of worked on and forgot about. And so that's nice. It's been a nice surprise. So I have a couple things, yeah, a couple manuscripts of poetry that I'm putting together in this novel that... Uh, will hopefully be sending out in the new year. you have a working title on it? I echoed. I echoed. Great. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much.